Hello, this is Trebuchet Talks. A podcast increases the range of art through interviews with great contemporary artists you may not have heard of yet. We aim to dig a little deeper and bring you a different snapshot of art in the UK. So yes, we're based in London, but if the past few months have taught us anything, it's that community is so much more than where we are physically. It's a state of mind. I'm Megan, and I'm coming to you from Trebuchet Towers in the heart of northwest London, where I've been getting itchy feet strolling virtually around empty galleries eagerly awaiting to get back to the real thing. I'm going to be guiding you through this podcast, so let's ready the missile and get started. In this episode, we have an interview with BP Portrait Award winner Charlie Schaffer and a snippet from our next print issue on contemporary surrealism. But first off, how's everyone doing? It's pretty hard to talk about the state of the world right now without talking about lockdown. In the UK, we're gradually seeing things reopening bit by bit. And I don't know about you, but I think I've pretty much finished Netflix. And here's some advice. If you think you should cut or dye your hair because you're bored, don't. I've done the research for you. It's not going to end well. So enough talk from me and let me launch you into an update from our editor. Hello, this is Kailash, the editor of Trebuchet, with another update from the print room. Despite being self-isolated, we've had a particularly busy few weeks, with a highlight being the Trebuchet Talks Crowdcast event. It was the first time we've run one of these events, and despite a few hiccups, it went smoothly, with great feedback from the guests and the audience. Some great moments were choreophotolist Benji talking about the physical aspects of his creation, Dr. Millen discussing moving nanofragments, and post-punk icon Barry Adamson discussing his work with David Lynch on Lost Highway. Plus, the QA was pretty good too. We have the video hosted on Patreon, so if you fancy watching the action, follow the link in the show notes. Or stay subscribed to hear the talks as part of future podcasts. And in terms of future events, well, we don't have anything planned for the immediate future. However, we will be continuing our partnership with October Gallery. And we do hope to have a real-world event as soon as it's safe to do so. In terms of another virtual event, Sign up on Patreon to hear about it first and to secure your place. Now for an update on the print issue, Trebuchet 8, Contemporary Surrealism. At this stage, it's looking like the next issue will be out mid-July in the UK and a few weeks after that in stores around the world, depending on how UK export and distribution affects things in your country. We're finalising the cover, and the back cover sponsor Ops and Ops has a particularly topical photograph which contains a number of artistic references to surrealism, which we hope that you can find. Inside the magazine itself, we'll be featuring fantastic articles by Martin Lang, exploring the roots and ramifications of boundaries. Alexi Munro, writing about the surrealist practice of 21st century populism. Edward Winters on surrealism, over and yet everywhere, featuring the work of Mika MacDonald and Sophia Mitzola. And cult literary figure Scott Dawood on surrealism, madness and unfathomable depths in literature, as well as much more. If that sounds good and you fancy saving a bit, then you can pre-order 188 pages of printed goodness from the Trebuchet website, or support your local bookstores. And now for something new. We're premiering a new part of the update called Subscriber Shoutout. So as a bit of a fun bonus for subscribers and backers, we are going to give something of an informative and hopefully intriguing shout-out as a way of saying thanks for supporting us. So for each episode, we're going to read out a little bit of a key or quirky reference from a book that we're using for our upcoming issue. Our current book is A Cavalier History of Surrealism by J.F. Dupuis, otherwise known as Raoul Vanagame, a well-known situationist author 
who wrote The Revolutionary of Everyday Life. The History of Surrealism is a rather sporty little number that covers the polemic basics of surrealism from a situationist perspective. So at the £3 mark, subscribers get a juicy phrase. Subscribers who offer £7 get a tasty sentence. And for the loftiest subscribers who commit to the highest amount, they'll receive a full paragraph of incendiary, if a bit random, wit. So at the first tier, we have Jyoti Bindu, Mad Love. And then at the second tier, well, we don't have any second tier subscribers as yet, but uh, hopefully in the future. So skipping ahead to the third tier, we have a number of these. So we'll just do a few for each podcast and hopefully catch up over time. So for the first subscriber, Mr. Williams, we have... If the pig's ears quiver, it is because Le Marseillaise is being sung. Come on, children of the shit bucket, let's fill Poincare's ears with our snot. Timeless. And so, for Mr. Thorpe, from page 45, we have... The general told us, with his finger up his bum, the enemy is that way, move out. Which I think you'll agree is fairly scintillating. The other big news is that we have the new website up and running. It looks and feels like a big step forward. And we'd be interested to hear what you listeners think about it, whether there is anything that we missed or anything that you'd like to see. Loudly love it or hate it, it'd be great to hear from you. Of course, we're big fans, so there's a heartfelt thank you from all of us to Forrest Devere and his team for their sterling efforts in getting the site up and running. Also, we'd like to give a thanks to Danny DeMatos at Shush Studios for his continued audio support. The man is a font of technical knowledge and his advice has been invaluable to us. We're getting better. So that's it from the print room update. Adios amigos, protest safely, and stay alive. This week's postcard comes from Trebuchet's partner, Charlton Gallery. This is an excerpt from an interview recorded as part of our research for the next issue of Trebuchet 8, Contemporary Surrealism. Charlton Gallery recently featured conceptual artist Matilda Moores, and here she is discussing her work, mouths, and surrealism. At the Charlton Gallery's recent show, For In Itself, Moores created an installation which contained a number of references to the mouth, from giant teeth, woven tapestry tongues, uvula sleeping bags, and then the terminal conduit into, well, that's hard to say. Presaging our oncoming issue on surrealism, we asked Moores about its influence on her work. You mentioned conceptual art and pop art before. Pop art has a real relationship to um, objects and how culture and identity are formed through the kind of objects that we create Hmm. and that we choose and buy. So I think the relationship with pop art, like a relationship between the idea of kind of taste and of trend. Yeah, I guess there's there's something in in the sort of honesty of admitting that that's how identity is formed. I think that's something that is Hmm. kind of that I sort of believe that we're made of the things in a bit of a structuralist way that we're made of of the relationship between the things that we surround ourselves with to a certain extent. Rather than being like a fixed kind of internal identity, it's like yeah. we're created of these sort of fragments, which is why I like frag- fragmenting and these pieces are like f- fragments of the mouth. So there's something... Mm-hmm. I really grew up on cartoons in like a big way. It was a lot of what I remember... I would wake up at like five and watch five hours of cartoons. My mom, anyway, my mum was a single parent and at university, um, and so she would sleep <laughs> in on Saturday mornings, and I would just get free reign. To Saturday watch cartoons. cartoons, yeah, yeah. 
all morning long. And I guess I'm in the questions that you sent over when um, there was one about the third spatiality, which obviously yeah. is this like very um, philosophical and kind of academic um, idea that Olga explained to me when she first kind of proposed the show. And I guess my take on that feels like it's much more related to like Roger Rabbit, where like <laughs> tunes and people exist in the same universe, <laughs> and that being the this that's kind of the third space. Shed. <laughs> um, well, Olga yeah. mentioned that you're you have a a preoccupation with mm. the idea of being swallowed yeah. of, of of Disney. I think it was Pinocchio. Olga. Yeah, so. in Pinocchio, he lives. Like he lives inside a well. There's also a horrific Ren and Stimpy episode where they live inside someone's mouth that is absolutely revolting. <laughs> yeah, the idea of the third space as well, like, really felt like it's related to the mouth for me. I'm kind of obsessed with mouths. Mm. Um, that might be Freudian. I don't know. It probably is, like, in some capacity. But isn't everything? Yeah, exactly. according to Freud. According to Freud, anyway, yeah. for sure, he was uh, big into himself. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like, I guess. The idea of sort of, of like being consumed or like what gets consumed and the mouth as the site of the beginning of that consumption or like the beginning of that kind of breakdown, I think is probably why I'm in like interested in it. And um, also the idea of like making gi- like gigantic mouths. Mm. Um, so that's pr- probably the last three shows that I've done I'm going to have to move on at some point but <laughs> the last three shows that I've done we have had these gi- like gigantic mouths and I guess there's something about being a bit contrarian within that like getting big enough that you can swallow something rather than having it swallowed right. you maybe well that's the kind of I think that relationship of like who gets to eat what or what gets eaten by right. what is like part of, um, I guess that's a very kind of underlying thing that's sort of a bit of a driver for me. And like top of the food chain, sort of. Yeah, and just like where the like where the systems swallow you up, or where the material swallows you up, or whether yeah. you swallow material. I think it should be a there should be a bit more of like a fidgeting between those two positions. Yeah. Like material doesn't just work for you, and you aren't just um, at the mercy of the material. Yeah. Or at the mercy of your making. I like that kind of slippery space between those two things mm. and that yeah being eaten feels like it relates to that so this work in particular and we've spoken about pop but there's also a surreal element to it mm. i mean you have gone into the psychological background of it a bit but maybe you could yeah. you could flesh that out a little bit more really that's related to i think an idea of symbolism and the different kind of elements of the mouth each have their own like really particular potent kind of sit like right. symbolism Again, that kind of relates to that idea of like word play for me, or that's why that kind of word play exists because we're always looking for like these new ways of expressing interior experience. The mouth as the space of like language formation is the space is the space where interior experience gets externalized. Mm. Um, so in that way, I guess that's how I see that kind of relationship, like that relationship to psychology. And again, that sort of like. Um, middle space, the corridor is like yeah. a middle space, the mouth is like a middle space that bridges a gap between interior and exterior. Yeah. And that feels like like totally the terrain of psychology to me. Yeah. I really, really inherently see psychology as related to surrealism, like those guys were dead into that kind of dream symbolism. And yeah, and I guess also when you play with scale, you 
you make things kind of surreal because again I yeah and cartoons feed into that idea yeah. of kind of the surreal bodies bending in ways that they shouldn't and things kind of melting there's like a similar aesthetic language I feel like in cartoons and in a lot of surrealist painting yeah with your work the role of language is quite key in that conceptual formation mm. so I'd imagine that psychological concepts and how that deconstructs within language or through therapy is kind of areas that you've had to yeah. think about once or twice, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, dead, dead into it. Well, again, I guess it's that kind of idea of expression. Also, I don't know how much I believe that this stuff feeds in, but I guess it's all part of you. So my in my family, my mum is a speech and language therapist. My... Grandma is an English teacher. My aunt is like a poet. I mean, she does other things, but and my great uncle was like taught English literature as well. So there's like a it's like a wordy family, I yeah. guess. And so I feel like that's I always wanted to like be a bit contrary. Or I was always interested in like a bit of rebellion against that with the visual. But I guess you can't fight where you come from. <laughs> I feel like where I come from is like like a wordy place. So. Um, but again, I have a real interest in like semi like semiotics and the way that we can sort of the way that we read things, and I don't think that needs to make them unmyst like unmysterious. I think that what's to go back to psychology, I think that what's the kind of interior associations you have with materials and objects are too large to push through language but that attempt to I think is like interesting yeah and I like the idea of materials being pushed through a sort of system that's maybe why they end up being a bit like wonk like wonky or slumped as with the sleeping bag sort of forced through yeah like a language system that doesn't can't handle them and that's why they need to doesn't contain their entire meaning yeah exactly exactly that yeah yeah pretty tasty Further parts of this discussion will appear in the next issue of Trebuchet, Contemporary Surrealism, due out in May slash June 2020, and on the website in due course. Links in the show notes. So without further ado, we have our feature talk with Charlie Schaffer. Schaffer's work, Considered Portraits, are vibrant action paintings that describe more than the visual representation of the sitter. They encapsulate a process. They've also won numerous awards, including first prize at the BP Portrait Award and also the Brian Botting Prize, both in 2019. You can find out more on Charlie's website. Links are in the show notes. The response to this talk at the event was somewhat overwhelming and already this talk is one of our most requested. Listen on to find out why. Charlie's work is, um, it's classified as portraiture, but speaking to Charlie for, for, the last, for the last issue of Trebuchet, it became clear that you don't necessarily see your work as portraiture. Yeah, so I would always say, I think it's very important which la the language you use when you talk about art, because obviously we exist by using language, the way that we perceive everything is through language. So I'm very aware of how I talk about my work. And I would say that I don't paint portraits. I'm not a portrait painter, I paint people. I know for a lot of people that might seem, you know, much of a muchness, but in general, when someone says the word portrait, it evokes the idea that you're meant to capture an essence of someone. It's meant to be about that sitter. You're meant to capture something that someone can look at and be like, right, that's them, caught the likeness of them. Someone else can recognize them. If they're an author, it might have a book on the side or something like that. 
it's meant to all be about that person. Whereas I would say that I paint people and the reason that I paint people is I basically get sad, lonely and depressed on my own. Fundamentally, I'm not an artist that can get up all day and just work on their own in the studio. I get people to come and sit because the way in which I paint is that you are very much talking. People are not inanimate objects, they are people. So they come and sit two or three times a week for two or three hours at a time for anywhere between about three and seven months is normally how long it takes to do a picture. So this one was the third picture, second or third picture that Tandy sat for. This was one I was living in Whitechapel. And then one of the other ones, which is of Mara, that was that one where this one went on for five months and she sat three times a week at eight in the morning for three hours at a time without fail. And the reason she's wearing that coat is because it was bloody freezing in the studio. Um, this one won the BP award, so I had some money after that for heating, but beforehand I didn't have much money at all. So that is quite literally why she's wearing this coat. A lot of them read into that afterwards. Um, and essentially, I think I was saying this earlier as well, but I always liken sitting to a portrait, or sitting for a painting even, as going to therapy. Imagine if you go somewhere two or three times a week to the same place, I paint and work and live in the same place, in the same house. So this is a room in the house in which I live so that people come to my house, you sit, you have tea to begin with, you chat, you catch up, then you go upstairs and you start chatting about whatever you want. There's no music, there's no phones, there's nothing else. You are literally just one-on-one -on -one with that person. We live in a world where people don't really feel comfortable. You know, even when you go to a pub, you're always doing something. If you want to spend time with someone, you're always doing something. There's always an activity that you're doing that allows you to do that. A painting, because of the social and historical weight behind a painting, for some reason it's a virtuous act. You know, it, it's ingrained into us in our society that painting is a thing that needs to be done or it's got some purpose behind it. Which, even though I don't agree with that, it does allow people to slow down and stop and sit. So people will come and sit for me because they feel like they are participating, they feel like they're doing something. They're aiding this process, which is making a painting. Whereas actually what's happening is I'm standing here, they're sitting over there and we are just talking. Mm. And we just talk for two or three hours at a time. And inevitably, if you come back two or three times a week, you slowly open up. Those first like two weeks of sitting is always a little bit, it's kind of like dating. You know, you're putting the best <laughs> versions of yourselves out. You're not really being very open. You're trying to suss each other out. I'm, I've done it a lot with a lot of different people. So I have learned how to not be very overwhelming, I'm a very open person, which I think is a good thing, but I've also learned that you need to ease people into that because not every, necessarily everyone's used to that. Mm. And I'm used to being open with people I just meet instantaneously, which a lot of people will become open, but they need to feel comfortable, which is why it's kind of like therapy that you come back to this safe space as such, mm. horrible term. And then slowly but surely over time, you form a very, very specific and intimate relationship and I think one thing I'd say is the reason I'm not a portrait painter, I would say that a portrait painter has an idea, a preconceived idea of what this picture is going to be. They're starting from a point where they think, right, I'm going to make a picture of this person. It's going to look like this. It's going to look like them. I have no idea what my picture is going to look like at all. So the result that you see, this thing at the end, is the result of me throwing away about four pictures going through about two mental breakdowns and then not knowing what I'm doing at any given moment. So the way that I paint is I start from one point and spread out. The reason that I do that, firstly, it's got a few reasons. So I tend to start around here because you kind of get a light, a dark and a mid. 
kind of the center of your forehead. Yeah, just like there, and you start spreading out. And if you spread out, firstly, it means that you pay equal attention to every single bit of the painting that you're painting. I don't want it to be dead spaced. I want every single part of this picture of this canvas to be equally alive. I don't believe that the eyes are the windows to the soul at all. I think it's a social norm that you look into each other's eyes. Because if you stare at your lips whilst talking to someone, it's just a bit creepy, isn't it? Because we're not used to that. And also, if I was kind of looking over there whilst talking to you, you'd be thinking, what the hell is he looking at? Why is he not paying me attention? So it's just to show that you're engaged. That's why we look into the eyes. But I don't think that the eyes are any more alive than a bit of your cheek, a bit of your forehead. Yeah. Personally, I think all emotion is held in the forehead as well. I think that when you kind of do that like this or any kind of the feelings that come out, you kind of see it in the forehead. So if you start from one point spread out, you pay equal attention to every bit, every bit relates to the next part. But also it means that you have to respond to the experience. And I don't mean in a conscious way. I think if you respond consciously to the experience, which is, all right, we're talking about something sad, I'm gonna make it look sad. And you'll yeah. end up with a very tacky picture, something very forced, very one-dimensional in a way. Yeah. Whereas if you try and just be open every time that you're moving on, inevitably, if someone comes six, three times a week, six months, you will go through every possible emotion probably within that time. They will go through every possible emotion. You're moving, they're moving, I'm tired, they're happy, sad. All of this mixture comes about, which means that every mark you put down is actually a record of that experience rather than making an image for the sake of it. So I like the game of painting. So I, I enjoy trying to make a picture work on a canvas. But for me, that's about 5% of making a picture. The act of painting is what allows me to spend time with that person in a very specific and very intimate way a way in which I haven't found that I can do through other, other means. If you put a camera down, a lot of people say, well, if it's about the experience, why don't you record it? Then you're both very aware that you're being recorded. Yeah. I don't let my sitters see the painting. They see the back of the canvas the whole way through. So Amara sat for this painting and after five, six months, we turned around, she saw it and she went, is this all right? <laughs> so we started another one. So we started the second one straight away on the same day because She's the perfect sitter for me because she didn't care about the picture. She wasn't there for the final thing. At the end of it, she was there for the experience, which takes the pressure off me when it comes to making the picture. Mm. And also means that we're both actually benefiting from doing it. You know, like I said, we live in a world where there are enough images as it is. There's no point in making an image for the sake of it. You've got to know what you're actually benefiting. Why are you doing it? Why are you making it? So you're not a fan of photorealism? No, not really. Um, I would say that photorealism probably encaptures the experience quite well, but I then see the picture and think that looks like a really boring experience. Mm. That's the thing that I get across. I look at it and just think that just looks really tedious to make, you know? And it's just making an image for the sake of it. It can be done in a different medium. I'm not entirely sure what can be gained from doing it as a painting, you know? Yeah. Um, when we were talking about this painting earlier, you were saying some fascinating things about the, the, the movement of the viewer's eye. Mm. But, how you've used kind of some geometric structure within the painting to create a, not necessarily a, a narrative that tells a story, but flows around the painting. Could you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, so I suppose the history of this picture is because the downside of starting from one point and spreading out means that you can't really control what your picture's gonna look like. I like that, but sometimes you end up with like a close cropped head like this. So I thought, right, I'm gonna start with a giant canvas and I'll just cut it down to size. Start with a giant canvas, started adding, kept going, kept going, kept going. It ended up being that by putting in this coat in this way, so firstly, a few things about this. Both Amara and I were going through quite an extreme depression at this time. We were our only connection to the outside world whilst we were doing this. I was unable to see other people. Amara was not in a good way, shape or form. And many times she would come to sit and we wouldn't actually paint. We would just sit with each other. One of us probably weeping in the corner somewhere. 
And this was basically like our savior, having this picture, mm. because obviously when you're depressed and you can't really connect to the world, having some kind of fixture, having something you know you have to do no matter what, and you go there and it's non-judgmental. It's not even that we're talking through it, because that's mm. not really how it works. You don't really know you're doing it. It's just a retrospective labeling, I think, depression a lot of the time. Anyway, so with this, it started off just with the head, and I was gonna cut it just after the head, but then we kind of decided that we needed to make it a bit more powerful. We didn't want it to be a pitiful thing. There was nothing pitiful about Amara. She's an incredible human being. Just because she finds the world hard does not mean that she's in any way pitiful at all. So I wanted to kind of do that justice in a way, and it started growing. So we're like, right. I started thinking, right, let's try and make it a strong, kind of monolithic thing, something that you look at from afar, and it's, it's got a strong presence. And it's quite like a beautiful, powerful thing. And then you get up to the face and you see that it's kind of tender and it's actually got some emotion, hopefully, in it. But it's not, oh my God, it's a really sad person, how can we pour her? Yeah. It's more like this big, strong thing. So that's why we decided to put in the whole thing. An old master trope is, so I spent a lot of time in the National Gallery as well. You can still learn endless things from the old masters. And an old master trope is the pyramidal structure. If you put a pyramid, your eye automatically moves up to the top. So if you look at most, pretty much like 90% of the things in the National Gallery will have a pyramid in it somewhere. It just might be hidden. And that controls where your eye goes. So you have this pyramidal structure. You see a big thing from far that you think's pretty. You go, ooh, that's a nice coat. So you come forward and you look at it and it takes you up to the head. You then look at the head and it's got this dark line that comes back down the middle, which then takes your eye back down and keeps going around like that. Then if you kind of look into what is nominally the background or whatever you want to call it, it's also made up of thousands of tiny lines which nearly killed me to paint. But they're also following the line of the gaze as well. So you come up to the head and hopefully that if you follow that around, same with these lines coming here, it brings you back around. So that hopefully every single bit of it kind of works like a machine, which is something that Auerbach says as well, which is you take away any part of the painting, this is how you know it needs to be essential. If you take out where any part, the whole thing crumbles. Mm. And that's what I kind of wanted. I wanted it all to be working and moving coherently and together. Because it's kind of like how you actually perceive people in the real world as well. Where you know, when you see someone, you might zone in on someone and hone in and look at them, but you're actually seeing through space. They've got the space around them, the interaction between the two of you. And it's all about movement constantly mm. all the time and how they exist within that space. So that was essentially why I tried to make everything as equally important, even if it doesn't seem so when you first look at it. So with the that sense of movement uh, and and your method of painting of starting and, and giving equal weight to each element um, that must mean that I know when we're chatting there is some mental map in your head about the game of painting as you're saying mm. the certain structure so you are working within those sorts of tropes yeah. and then overlaying that with the momentary experience that you've noticed that on that day in that sitting in that second yeah I would say that the way in which I think maybe a good painting is created is to be aware, it's to learn about all of these things, to be aware of it, to be constantly researching it. So I would still be going to the National Gallery once a week, which I've been doing for about seven years, to draw from the old masters. I still mm. draw out and about as well. I'll go to cafes and draw and I'll draw myself. So I do two self-portraits every morning before I do anything else. So I have a lot of self-portraits, <laughs> a lot. So that in the back of your mind, you're always aware of it. But I don't think you should ever consciously put those into effect. Because if you're consciously putting these ideas and these you know, pictorial games as such into process, you yeah. make a clever painting. And I don't think clever paintings make good paintings. But I think that a clever person, someone who understands it, can make a good painting, if that makes sense. It needs to be this fine balance between emotional direct response and of the experience and a record of the experience with how do you actually make it work yeah. in a rectangle. I mean, you don't have to do it in a rectangle, I've just chosen to do it because there's a hell of a lot of things to base it on, you know? Yeah. There, there's so many things that have been made into a rectangle pictorially that you can 
fit into that game as well. You can look at things that are done before and work within that and see why they work. But I think... How big is this picture? Probably that size. Oh. Yeah, probably that size. <coughs> yeah. Hmm. yeah with the two self-portraits you do in the morning, is, is that a grounding exercise for you to, to get into the... Well, how do you, how do you see yeah. that? So I would say that drawing is the most important thing, which I constantly try and keep up as well. But inevitably, if you have a morning sitter, an afternoon sitter, and an evening sitter, you kind of forget to draw around that as well because you think, right, I'm doing a lot of work. Drawing is so important because drawing is essentially just reacting to what you're experiencing and making a mark to represent that. I'm not saying it needs to look like something, it doesn't have to be anything whatsoever. I mean, the Cy Twombly's drawings as well, paintings, drawings, whatever you want to call them, they're all a direct reaction to an experience. Same with the Rothko painting as well, that comes through drawing. And every mark that is put on, I would consider to be an element of the game through drawing. If you draw yourself every day, if you draw the same thing every day, I draw myself because I'm always there. You stop, a lot of people think it's narcissistic, I would say it's the complete and utter opposite. I think it leads to an existential crisis because I now look in a mirror and I don't see myself, I don't connect to that thing that's in the mirror. I'm so uh -huh. used to just looking at it, responding to it, that I feel a separation. Now when I see myself in a mirror, I have a thought and the thing there moves. I don't really connect that much to it. But the main reason is apart from it being kind of like a muscle, the more you draw, the better you get at seeing something, responding yeah. to it, not having that fear. It gets rid of preciousness. So if you haven't made any marks, you haven't done anything all day, and you've got this one picture that you're going into the studio to do in the afternoon, you're gonna put so much pressure on that one thing. And to do a painting, to do a good painting, you have to have the ability to spend six months doing one little passage and then have the ability to get rid of it if it doesn't work. And that's the really hard bit. And if you don't draw, you become very precious about this one bit that you've got. Mm. Whereas if you constantly draw, because the act of drawing is constantly searching, it's kind of exploration, you know? Maybe painting is the act of discovery. Maybe that's, maybe forget that. <laughs> Sounds about maybe right. That. <laughs> but you need to have the ability to, yeah, react, to feel like you have the ability to get rid of things if they need to go. With that element of, as you're saying, you're you know, constantly, uh, well, every day doing a portrait of yourself to the point where you don't recognize yourself in the same way because you're constantly reacting to that. Mm -hmm. Over the course of painting Mara, does your, the way you see her change over that, just through the sheer duration of constantly looking at this person, does she take on a different form than, say, looking at me now? Yeah, I would say inevitably, but I would also argue that it's probably the same with anyone that you become intimate with. And I don't mean you have to be physically intimate, just emotionally or intellectually intimate, sure. is that you obviously start to see them in a different way. It's the idea that you find someone more attractive the more you get to know them. It's that kind of thing that inevitably the way you perceive someone changes depending on your mental state, what you've experienced, how they're feeling, all of those, mm. which is why I take that long to paint. I'm sure I could make pictures very quickly. I have made some pictures very quickly, but I have no desire to because what I want is to try and capture this amalgamation over the months, over hopefully years in the future. You know, spend four years on a painting would be great. I, yeah, that won't happen. But, <laughs> but to be able to do that means that inevitably you are just recording your life with this person. Yeah. It's a very intense little bubble of life that you're So over the seven through. months that you made this painting, obviously your relationship with Amara um, deepened yeah. over that time. Uh, and you're saying that, you know, your process of painting, you're kind of encapsulating that, that feeling of, of that moment with every bit that you do. So does that, when you're capturing all those different elements that are of different times and a changing relationship, how does like the last bit relate to the first bit? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's always a hard 
thing to bring together especially because if this is going on for this, this one took five months but if that's going on for five months I'm also painting other pictures my painting and my drawing is evolving which means that when I get down to here because I start from the top and kind of go down yeah. I'm not actually painting any of my other pictures in that way I have to get back into the mindset of this picture to try and make it then work with that right. and everything with this coat I, I'm so happy that no one really wears these anymore. It was a phase that's gone out already, which is quite nice. <laughs> Fucking hate these things. <laughs> because this would obviously just change so much. So it's in a way, what's interesting about painting clothes, I would say, compared to the face, is obviously with the head, I can get it to sit in the same way. The light changes all the time. We live in England, and unfortunately, I don't have a north-facing studio. I have very much a small window, which is facing west, which is highly inconvenient. We're a picture of it, actually. Yeah. Right. there. That's with scaffolding as well. So that wasn't ideal. <laughs> but it meant that if the sun was quite bright, the yeah. light would be completely different than her. Basically, you couldn't control those aspects. So you end up having to actually remember where you were yeah. and understand the essence, for want of a better word. Things are actually integral. You think you see what you're seeing, you try and make it objective, but you have to understand what you're seeing and you have to understand why you think you're seeing that and you have to break that down and then put down what mm. you think needs to be there, if that makes sense. So it's kind of like you're looking at something, you're trying to understand what you're seeing, like, right, why am I seeing a bit of orange there? Yeah. And then you have to look at the bit next to it and be like, right, does that mean that that's lighter? Is it glowing? Why does it look orange? Is that because that's a bit bluer? You know, and it's so it's all about it being relative to the bit next to it as well. So you can't just make a mark in complete and utter isolation. Yeah. Which is why if you go from one point to the next, it always has to relate to the bit next to it. So even though at the end, so I make people look old and sad. That is just the objective truth about my pictures. I don't make people look very happy. That might be something about me, probably. But also, the features are inevitably abstracted as well. Because right. if you are moving from one, I'm not sketching in, I'm not trying to make it look like them, that's never a point. But everything always relates one bit to the next. So it will always be them and it will always be me, which is probably the old sad bit. But it will always be them, just not in a photographic way as such, more in an experiential way. Yeah. If that makes sense. And I'm kind of nuancing how you reflect the experience in the sort of painting you do. Is it a violence of, of brushstroke? Is it uh, an aspect of, of your colour choices? Can you talk a bit? Yeah, I would say that it is very much subconscious. So this is all a retrospective thing. This is us looking back at a finished picture. Yeah. Me having had a lot of time to think about it and looking at the final thing. And obviously this was in the National Portrait Gallery, so there's a lot of time speaking with other people about it as well and kind of going yes. back over it. You know, this is the one that I've spoken about the most out of any of my paintings. So it's more at the time, it's very much a subconscious thing. You have to be... Celia Poole just released a book recently, which is a self-portrait, and it is the best thing. I think everyone needs to read it, it's fantastic. And it talks about truthfulness. Mm -hmm. It talks about making a truthful picture is about responding in a genuine way, whatever that means. You've got to try and figure out what that actually means to you. So again, I think if you were to push something, be like, right, I'm feeling really pissed off, I'm feeling really angry, I'm feeling really like, present or whatever, and you make a mark in a certain way to denote that, that can undermine everything. What you have to do is actually just concentrate. I believe that any picture, a good picture, comes through extreme concentration. If you are completely concentrating on that person in front of you and you're ignoring absolutely everything else, mm. then you inevitably make a mark to respond to that situation. And then when you look back at it over six months, because there will be times where, this is why I mean it's so much more subconscious and it's much more physical than I think people actually put into practice. Again, people like to look back at things and think that there was an understanding before it's happened, like a preconceived conceptual idea. Yeah. Whereas actually what's happening is, if I'm feeling very energized, I'm feeling very alive, and Amara is feeling very vulnerable and very quiet, I'm not gonna be 
putting down marks in an extreme way. I'm going to yeah. be trying to make her feel better. If I'm feeling very slow and tired and sad and she's very, very hyper and annoying, I will find her really annoying and it will be this kind of conflict between the two and that will inevitably direct the way I make marks. It's much more practical than people think, but if you are being honest and open to the experience, that is you know, the experience. The yeah. experience is a lot more physical than people actually think. People think that it's all cerebral and that you're thinking, she's sad, so I'm going to make a mark to demote that. But it's more that, inevitably, if the feeling of the room, if you're feeling protective over her because she's feeling really sad, I'm not going to be being really aggressive on the yeah. canvas. I'm going to be going much slower, talking to her maybe a bit more, which means I put marks down in a different way. If she's not talking at all because she's incredibly sad, it means I'm really focusing on the picture. So therefore, the weight shifts constantly throughout. So it's yeah. entirely subconscious, but you have to be completely open to what's happening and forget everything else. That's the hard part. When obviously having having won the award and this is becoming a, a, a famous painting um, you must have heard some or quite a lot of interpretations about the regal nature of the coat oh uh, yeah i mean yeah. and imara the coat's been a hilarious one because the national portrait gallery uh don't like to talk about sadness very much so the only way they talk about this picture is that it, they say it was based on a titian coat which it wasn't but you know, <laughs> there is a painting in the national gallery where titian has painted someone in a fur coat and when they asked me about it, I said, I have seen that painting. So they yeah. said that it was based after that. But if that makes them happy, then it's fine. Um, but it's more, I've had some wonderful feedback from random people, because we live in the age of the internet, getting in touch, saying that the painting reminds them of someone in a very emotionally intense way, which has been quite nice. Mm. But in general, I think most people, firstly, are just surprised that she's not 40. She's like 19. Most people think she's very old. And a lot of people... Someone called it The Weeping Woman. That's what they thought the title was. So I don't really see it as a sad painting, but I know a lot of people do, so I've accepted that. But in general, most people just talk about the fur. It's easier to talk about fur, isn't it, than feelings? So, <laughs> you know. Soft skills. Yeah. yeah. Um, any questions for Charlie? So you say that you start directly to paint. So don't you, you don't use any... Pencil or anything to sketch a bit of a something you start with oil, right? With, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I literally just start from one point and spread out. I think if I were to sketch something in, I know it works for some people, but for me it would feel a bit of a confinement and a bit yeah. of trapping in a way. But because I don't have any idea what's going to happen, sometimes I do draw the person first in a way to get to know them, so that you both feel comfortable in the experience of sitting and being painted, because it's not usually something someone's been through. But that will be something separate. That won't ever really be the underlying part of the picture. I think I used to try drawing, then realised that I just painted over it anyway. It was a bit pointless, so I just stopped, <laughs> stopped doing it, really. But yeah. And, and, then, and then, when let's say this is our almost our final stage, do you retouch uh, to give some highlights or uh, something? Or you, when you really do it, you do it forever. That's done. Then there you don't go back anymore. Uh, no, I don't think I... Yeah, no, because I, I will only move from one bit to the next once okay. I think that it's completely wow. finished. Oh, okay. Um, so I know for certain that that whole top half from there up was as it is now, and the bottom half wasn't done. And the way that the BP Award works, like most online competitions, is that you enter a photo of it first, and if it gets through the first round, they then ask to see it in the flesh and judge it from the flesh. I entered this picture when I'd only reached that level there. Okay. And that took, me, that took me four and a half months to get to. I then had a month to finish it, let it dry, get it framed and get it to them. So that's why I hate fur coats for the passion. It just so nearly killed me, honestly, it was horrible. She had to sit 
<laughs> like the whole day, three strange, times a week. Strange experience for her to to sit, even though you're you're, you're painting the coat. So you know this is probably like three weeks, right? Yeah, but I think she was quite happy though because it meant that she could just move her head around as well. She she could finally actually just stop going like this all the time. She was able to move. She just had to kind of sit with it over her arms. So I think she was quite happy when it reached to that point. Mark, I think you had a question. Yeah, and where do you meet or find your um, so Amara I met on Tinder, which was very exciting. Um, that's the only person I've ever met on Tinder for a painting. Um, Not an un unprofitable meeting though. True, very, very true, very true. Yeah, Amara was funny because so I moved to Brighton and I was with my girlfriend when I moved to Brighton. We then broke up. I hadn't dated for about four or five years. So I'd been with my girlfriend, didn't really know how to do it. So I went on Tinder, met up with Amara, got to the date. I was like, oh my God, you're a baby. She was like 19. I was like, we can't do this. No, no. So then we met up for coffee, then we just started speaking, and then I realised that she would be perfect for a sitter. So I've learned over the years the things that I look for in people, which is they need to be emotionally and intellectually open and willing, and they need to be there for the experience. So I, they have to basically want to participate without wanting a result from it. And Amara struck me as that instantaneously. And also they need time. So Amara was a student, which is fantastic. Most students are rubbish because they can't commit to anything whatsoever, but she's not like a normal human at all in most glorious ways. So I tend to paint either retired, self-employed or students. But in the past, I would probably jump on anyone that said they wanted to sit, whereas now I have the luxury of being able to narrow that down slightly. And I've said from the beginning, whenever I meet people, so it's quite funny when you find a sitter, you kind of have to go on a date first. You have to like present the best version of yourself and try and suss each other out and be like, right, is this going to work? And I have learned that you need people who give off the feeling that they just want to be involved in a process that they haven't gone through at first. So it's about the experience. It's got to be entirely about the experience, basically. And they have to be not an awful human being. So how many hours a day do you paint? Lots. Um, most of it. So in general, I've had a bit of a weird illness for the last 10 months, so I haven't been able to do as much as I would like, but normally my normal routine would be that I'd get up about half five or six, do a couple of drawings. I'm a very routine person. Do a couple of drawings, have breakfast, do two hours of painting with my self-portraits. I've always got a self-portrait on the go. Then you have the morning sitter come sit, then an afternoon sitter in the afternoon. The thing with painting people is because it's about the whole experience as well. If someone comes and sits, they'll be with you for three hours, but you'll only be painting for two of those. So although I will be technically doing something from about half five until half five, I'm probably not painting for about four of those hours altogether. How come you're not wearing glasses? Because I've got good eyesight. <laughs> <laughs> but it's almost like a surgeon. I mean, what, what it strikes me looking at your stuff is that it's like the same obsession as Lucy and Floyd, except you are younger than than that. He was young once as well. He but, was yeah. young once. Mm -hmm. but, the, but the thing is, incredible focus. Do you, mm. do, you tra do any training? It's like a, a super marathon runner, what you are, sort of a hyper athlete. I would say I've learnt my limits. I don't do any training as such, although drawing is a training because the more that you draw, the longer you can concentrate for because you're used to just looking, making marks. That's why drawing is so important. But also I've learned that I can only actually paint someone for an hour maximum in one go, then I need to have a break because I don't think there's any point in making a mark unless you are completely and utterly focused. Because I don't want to just put down a mark for the sake of it or fill in areas. So I've learned that, although I would love to paint someone all day, every day, constantly without a break, 
I can't actually do that. That I can only do two hours with that one person with a break in between that as well. And then I need time to recuperate. I've also learned that I need to lie down. I need to go for walks. My life is very functional. I put everything into painting. So I know I get up in the morning, I do those two self-portraits. Then I go for walks. So I know I need to look at things far away rather than just look inside the studio. So I've just learned coping mechanisms basically to allow me to do this. I know that I need to do exercise because I stand up when I paint. So I physically need to be quite fit. I do a lot of boxing because boxing is great for meditation in the sense that you have to focus on that moment. I can't think about painting. It's the only way I can switch off. Because if you go boxing, you think about anything else, you get hit in the head. <laughs> so it's just quite blunt. So, it's quite, so I've just learned these things over the years about what helps me and what's beneficial for painting, basically. I think one more question over there. Oh, thank you. <laughs> just in terms of the process and your connection with art, what art is, what is being art is really inspiring. Yeah. Um, to your stuff about preciousness, um, I do calligraphy, definitely calligraphy, but I'm also a writer. And the concentration thing is super important because without that beam of concentration, you can't create anything great. I feel like calligraphy is a weird one because it's kind of this middle ground because that's the whole point of calligraphy, yeah. isn't it? Is that you have to get into this kind of a zen meditative yeah. state but also be focused at the same time. Yeah, it's muscle memory. Muscle yeah. I'm going to ask you very quickly, um, when you talk about the old masters, which portrait or artists have you found most to learn from? Is there any particular portrait? Have you learned something particular from? Yeah, I mean, Rembrandt's obviously right up there. I mean, Rembrandt is by far my favourite artist of all time. Um, but then I suppose we've got Velasquez, Titian. Titian's great for composition and colour. Veronese is brilliant for colour and composition as well, but in a more grand scale. Rembrandt, if you look closely at a Rembrandt painting, every single mark, although it looks like a person, it's nominally a portrait, it's nominally a picture of a person, every single mark when you go up close is a record of an experience. It's him, you, that's why his paintings are so present, especially his self-portraits, and we're very lucky in the National Gallery to have some of the most incredible Rembrandt paintings there as well. Especially there is a uh, double commission and it's just two people sitting like this, it's an old man and then an old woman staring out at you, I can't remember the names. And they're so present because every single mark that's on there is a necessary record of an experience. It's not delineating anything, it's not drawing anything, it's a direct response to what's in front of him. And it's built up over and over and over and over time. It's got spit in it, it's got layers of kind of crap in it as well, and sand in it when you look closely. It's just everything that needs to be there is there, and it builds up this incredible, incredible response. But yeah, I would say mainly Rembrandt, Van Dyck, obviously Van Gogh. Yeah, Velasquez stick with that and you're probably quite good yeah <laughs> good place to start charlie thank you so much it's always fantastic thanks again for listening to the trebuchet magazine podcast if you like what you've heard please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform share us on your social media channel of your choice or consider becoming a subscriber Every subscriber gets a shout out in the podcast, as well as that great feeling of supporting a truly independent contemporary art voice. We're taking pre-orders from our website, www.trebuchet-magazine.com, links in the show notes, and we're taking orders for £10 instead of the regular postage price of £14 in the UK, or £15.50 for worldwide orders, usually £19.50. 
which is for over 140 pages on contemporary art, luxury printed, hand-reared and lovingly raised, is a thing of beauty, which has been described by renowned contemporary artist Gavin Turk as a well-put-together, articulate, good-looking art publication. So there's many ways that you can support us now. You can subscribe to the magazine from trebuchet-magazine.com and to support the podcast, events and websites, go to our Patreon pages where there's a growing amount of exclusive material for backers from videos of the events to other patron related material, including what is sure to be our famous backer shout outs to Trebuchet t-shirts. Of course, if you'd like us to answer any questions on the podcast or to mention a creative event you think people should know about, please let me know via an email to megan at trebuchet.click. Till next time, stay her seat.